Hey, Bo Beans, it's your boy Riz, and welcome to episode two of Riz Radio. This episode of Riz Radio is presented by Betting Gods. Betting Gods provides tips and picks for a range of sports, including basketball, soccer, cricket, NFL, horse racing, and a whole lot more. If you just started betting and want to learn more about the betting game, visit Betting Gods on Twitter, or you can register for free daily picks at bettinggods.com, bettinggods.com. All right, this episode, episode two of the podcast, like I said, is going to steer clear of any MMA talk. I was fortunate enough to get in contact with uh, Ron Chepsik, who's an award-winning author, said he has over 60 million downloads on his podcast, and, and he was such an intricate and multidimensional person to have on to interview. We talked about his new book, which you'll hear more about in the interview phase of the episode, uh, his experience living in Colombia as a freelance journalist during the Pablo Escobar era in the 80s and 90s, the Cali cartel, and really unpacked that in the macro. And it was so interesting. Like I said earlier in the trailer, if you haven't listened to it already, go ahead and do so. I hope you guys are open in this process and are open-minded as I am about learning a thing or two because Ron and a lot of other people we're going to have on this show have so much to offer. As always, I appreciate you guys listening. Please subscribe and leave a five-star review if you haven't already. And now here is the interview with Ron. Award-winning author has written dozens of books, more than 4,000 articles, been interviewed by the History Channel, Dateline, and author of The Real Mr. Big coming out April 20th, Ron Chepsik. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Matthew. I appreciate being here. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been looking forward to this interview for a while now, so it's good to finally have some time to chat. Before we get started on anything else, The Real Mr. Big comes out in less than a week. Give myself and, and give the people a little bit more information on the book and what to expect from the overall story. Right. Well, the book's about um, uh, Jesus Ruiz uh, Henao, who many people may not know, but uh, in terms of uh, United Kingdom uh, drug trafficking, he's probably the biggest cocaine uh, dealer of all time. Uh, MI6, the British intelligence agency, um, described him as uh, the Pablo Escobar of, um, of, U- of UK um, cocaine trafficking. And uh, he was considered by, uh, by British authorities to be the first billion pound, that's billion pound uh, uh, cocaine dealer in, uh, in UK history. And uh, I got a story um, uh, in, in 2017, in May 2017, uh, I get a letter from his uh, daughter and uh, she wrote me and said that uh, her father, who was Jesus, was getting out of prison and uh, he wanted to know if I'd be interested in working on uh, his uh, life story. And uh, she sent me some links, about five links uh, to uh, information about him on the Internet. And I did. Uh, I clicked on those links, and um, I couldn't believe it. Uh, you know, this guy uh, had operated in, in the United Kingdom for like 20 years, and uh, uh, he built this incredible network. Uh, the um, authority said that uh, when he was busted, uh, the uh, uh, the price of cocaine jumped 50 percent because of the shortage of cocaine from uh, from from Colombia. And um, so I said, uh, yeah. I said, uh, tell me a little bit more. And so uh, she said that um, that uh, uh, her father served 18 years, and that uh, that uh, he'd be getting out, and that uh, he was in prison, and he could call me from prison. This is British prison, so uh, he called me. We chatted, and uh, uh, we got along, and uh, we we agreed that uh, I would work that we'd get together uh, when he got out of prison. And uh, I would work on a story. And uh, unfortunately, the, there were some delays, real, real delays. Like it took like uh, three years, almost three years before um, he was able to get out of prison. And I gave him time to acclimatize back in Colombia. He, he was deported from the United Kingdom 
to uh, to uh, uh, Colombia, and uh, I gave him time to uh, get uh, uh, used to freedom. And then uh, we arranged for my coming to uh, to Bogota. We would meet in Bogota. He'd come up from Armenia where he was living, and uh, we would uh, sit down and I would listen to his story and uh, I would get, gather as much information as I could in about a week. So I went there and it was January uh, of last year, just before COVID hit. And uh, uh, the, the first cases were starting to uh, be publicized and all that. And uh, I, I did a, a week with him and uh, taped him, uh, got about uh, 30 hours of, uh, of uh, recorded interview with him and went home. And then the, uh, the COVID hit. And so we were, we were cut off because, you know, no travel on that. And uh, I sent out uh, a book proposal and uh, uh, I got uh, you know, a lukewarm response because nobody was buying anything because it was, um, um, uh, you know, the COVID, uh, people were uncertain. And uh, I, thought there was a, I thought it would be an easy sale. But finally, I, I did find a publisher who was interested in it. And um, that was Wild Blue Press. And um, I um, uh, worked with him. And uh, it took us only six and a half months from the time I started the book to when it's going to be published next week. Six wow. and a half months, you know, which is amazing. Uh, we started on it and uh, 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 his memory was great. <clears throat> I, I had some information and uh, it's about 65,000 words and uh, it tells uh, his story and uh, how he became the biggest uh, cocaine dealer in UK history. That's fascinating. So you said you went to Bogota, Colombia, for, the, for those that don't know. Uh, how was your experience there? I've been, I've been going back to Bogota in, um, since the late 1980s. I, I married a Colombian woman there. I, 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 was, I was on a, on a press junket back in the 1980s when uh, Colombia thought they could have a, a tourist uh, trade, even though Escobar was running crazy in the country, bombing, killing people and everything. So I went there and I missed my plane and I <clears> met <throat> her. And uh, uh, we started a relationship and we uh, uh, eventually got married. She came to the U.S., and then I went back to Colombia. I wrote a lot about Colombia. I've written four books of, about the Colombian drug trade. I have the definitive uh, history of the Cali cartel. Uh, it's called Narcos uh, uh, Inc. Now it's uh, put out by by Maverick House uh, in uh, in England, in Ireland. And um, uh, so I, I was familiar with Bogota, and I knew I knew uh, I knew the city and. Uh, 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 he came up and, uh, it was, it went, it went real well, you know, everything went real well. I surprisingly didn't have any, any problems, uh, researching or writing the book. Right. So over quarantine, me and my brother, we watched Narcos, loved it on Netflix. Then I started reading a few books about Pablo Escobar and about the Cali cartel. And let me ask you, because you're obviously more qualified to answer this question than myself. Give me your honest assessment on the portrayal of Pablo Escobar and the portrayal of the Cali cartel in Narcos, opposed to what actually happened in real life. Well, uh, of course, you're dealing with a movie, right? That's based on, on true events. So uh, you can't have the true events per se. You got you to gotta, uh, fictionalize it. Um, uh, overall, uh, I thought the series was, was, was pretty good. Um, they, they put uh, too much uh, emphasis on the role of Pacho Herrera, uh, who was actually the fourth um, uh, godfather of the Cali cartel. Uh, they, they put too much emphasis on his role. Uh, you know, in um, in in dealing with um, with with uh, the Medellin cartel and, and, and Escobar, uh, I thought the I thought the, the the character that played Escobar was was uh, was very good, 
and um, and overall it introduced people to uh, uh, you know to the story of uh, of Colombia in the uh, in the history of the war on drugs, which I thought was pretty good. It surprised me when you said the book, when you first pitched it, there weren't many takers because this is the first time I honestly read books. I'll be the first to admit before quarantine, I was not a reader at all, but I have a, probably stuck a 30, 40 books in my room, tried to read 20 pages a day. So I would have thought if anything, people would want to read it and it would go the opposite way. Well, uh, you would think it was a no brainer, right? I mean, that's right. exactly what you say. I mean, you have a, you have a quarantine, people are in quarantine. Hello. What, what are they going to do? They're going to read. Right. And, uh, but, uh, you know, people, they were scared. Everybody was scared, you know, at that time. This was when it was, it was you know, there was thousands of deaths a day. You know what I mean? And, uh, and uh, it was just climbing. And it, it looked like no, no relief in sight. And nobody had confidence in the Trump administration the way they were handling it. So uh, it was understandable. But I was, I was really surprised. And I had an agent, too, uh, who knew what she was doing. And she was pitching it. And um, uh, it was frustrating, but uh, finally, I, I did. I did get a uh, Wild Blue Press, which is a really good uh, true crime uh, publisher, and uh, they were enthused. And uh, I was able to to uh, to do the book. You said you were in the in Colombia during the 1980s and 1990s. Obviously, Escobar didn't die till '93. So while you were there, he was alive. He was still that prominent cone king kingpin. How was that, and how was your experience like in Colombia? You know, if you go to Colombia today, Medellin is one of the top American uh, retirement homes for, uh, you know, for, uh, for Americans. It's just, it's really amazing. But back in the 80s, I mean, uh, uh, Medellin was, was dangerous. You know, you had the Sicarios uh, running around. They were contract killers. And uh, they were on the payroll of, of Escobar. And uh, I remember um, sitting in the, in, in the house in Bogota and, and hearing a bomb go off. And, and you know the term narco-terrorism, right? Well, that stems from Escobar. He sort of invented the term. And, uh, and uh, so it, it was a very dangerous place. You get kidnapped for $25, you know, which I, uh, I know people that did, did get kidnapped for, uh, for $25. And, um, and it, was very, it was very dangerous. You, uh, I couldn't travel outside the city of Bogota uh, for more than maybe a couple of miles uh, because uh, the gorilla, gorillas were really strong. Uh, back in those days, and uh, they controlled much of the area outside the uh, outside the city. So uh, it was, you know, it was a, a freelancer's um, dream, really, because uh, uh, the, the you know the, the drug war. Everybody was interested in it, right? Uh, drugs were flooding the United States. Uh, Escobar was an international name, and uh, there was all kinds of of, of violence in, in in Colombia, and it made for good copy. And so. I had no problem getting uh, assignments. I wrote uh, extensively about about various aspects of the uh, so-called war on drugs. You said the bomb, but was there any other uh, times in Colombia where you were, were put in the face of danger? Well, no. Uh, actually, I'm I'm pretty cautious, and um, and uh, the family took care of me, you know, because they knew this. I, I was lucky. I had uh, you know a large, extensive family. My wife's family. And uh, they knew um, uh, 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 Bogota. They knew uh, uh, where I should go, and, and they took uh, very good care of me. And uh, but I was, you know, at, at one time um, we had a party, and uh, there was this guy standing there, and he was surrounded by like like five or six people. And uh, I thought it was kind of weird on that. And uh, later, after the party, um, <laughs> my wife said. Uh, I saw you staring at that at that uh, at that guy in in the corner there that was surrounding. He goes, yeah. He goes, 
you know who he was? I said, no. He says, well, he, he was the uh, head bodyguard of, uh, of the Orwella Rodriguez brothers who were in prison at the time. They had just been captured and uh, they were in prison on there. And uh, he was he was there, you know, uh, providing protection for the um, Rodriguez Orwella brothers while they were in prison. And I thought that was kind of interesting on that. And, uh, you know, it, there's 600,000 people approximately in Colombia that are that are related to the drug trade on that then. So you, you can meet people in some ways, like uh, one of my wife's uh, uh, cousins, it was a second cousin, uh, was at one time a bodyguard for Escobar on that. Um, and uh, I, I remember talking to him about the uh, about the uh, drug trade and he was telling me stories about it. So but uh, I, I didn't really have uh, uh, any any kind of uh, scary experience like I did in some other countries that I've been in, you know, like Nicaragua and Northern Ireland. Uh, so, uh, uh, it, you know, I, I guess I was lucky in, in a way. Let me ask you this. True crime podcasts are huge. I was looking today. There's a few in both the top 10 for both shows and episodes on Apple. Do you think the landscape of true crime consumption will continue to move more towards audio based? Well, I've got a, I've got a podcast. I've had one for, uh, uh since 2011, you know, I, I was, I was in this business before, you know, anybody started on that and, uh, you're right. You know, true crime, um, uh, is, um, uh, big right now. And, uh, they, they say that, you know, true crime, it's hard to write a really big bestseller, but, but if you write a true crime book, it'll sell continually. And I'm finding that out with my own books, you know, uh, who, who do pretty well in the beginning, but they continually they sell. And as far as being audio based, uh, I'm kind of surprised, you know, because, uh, you know, with streaming services, right. With the internet and all that, I'm amazed at how, how radio uh, and that's what that's all a podcast is, is radio, right? Uh, how popular they are. And uh, I'm amazed uh, at the number of uh, podcasts that are that are springing up, especially around true crime. And um, it's going to reach some saturation point at some time on that. But uh, as far as the audio thing is, um, I think it's going to grow, you know, continue to grow until it reaches saturation. You said the word saturation. I think that describes it perfectly. You're you're true crime. I'm more mixed martial arts, but all the same, it's unbelievable how many people have podcasts. And I, and, and unfortunately, I think it definitely does take away from the people that probably should have a microphone in front of their face. The uh, well, like like my my producer says, you know, he's kind of ticked off at it because he says uh, you can't get advertisers, right? Because you know the audience is so fragmented. You know what I mean? Um, uh, uh, it's 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 really hard to build up a fan base because there's so many true crime stories. I'm, I guess I'm kind of lucky because I was there uh, for a long time, and so I've got I've got a pretty loyal fan base. We've had over 60 million downloads of our show since 2011, and we're in 160 countries now on that. But I know I've lost uh, uh, listeners because of the you know the, the spreading of this um, uh, this phenomena of podcasting. And I am truly interested to see where the landscape of content consumption goes from here. I'd be surprised to see if it doesn't continue to grow more towards podcasts. You said you started yours in 2011, correct? Yeah, 2011. And, uh, you know, I still call my, my podcast a radio a radio show. You know, I, I refuse to call it a podcast. I said I was there in the beginning and uh, nothing's changed. So I'm still going to call it what, what I originally called it, a radio show. 
Let me ask you this, because I think the answer is going to be pretty fascinating. What would be the number one true crime event or series of events that you would want to write a book on that you've yet to do so? Well, uh, what I'm, I, it's kind of funny that you would, you'd say that, because I'm, uh, before, before uh, I got on the show today, uh, I was writing a synopsis for a book that I'm planning to write, which uh, may be the story of my, of, my, uh, of my professional career. It's an amazing story. And uh, uh, I, I don't know how much I should tell you because I haven't got the, the contract yet with them. But essentially, it's a, it's a story about um, uh, a white nationalist, right, uh, in the 1990s uh, who robbed more banks than John Dillinger did, uh, 22 banks in the Midwest. And what he was trying to do was foment uh, uh, a revolution. He wanted to overthrow the U.S. government. He started this, uh, this organization. Uh, they were like you know, uh, 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 white nationalists, you know, uh, uh, people that, that formed this organization. And they really, really thought they were going to overthrow the government. But uh, he also had a gender identity problem, too. And, uh, you know, he had uh, uh, transgender urges, all that, going back to his youth, you know, back to the 60s and 70s. And he was struggling. Uh, he was struggling with this while he was robbing banks and trying to foment a, a revolution. And uh, none of his uh, white nationalist buddies knew this. And um, he um, uh, got uh, arrested. The, the FBI finally caught up to him. He survived 50 bullets into his van. The FBI fired 50 bullets into his van, and he, and he got off with minor, minor injuries. So what happened was um, he uh, went to trial. His partner. Uh, committed a suicide. He hung himself in jail, and uh, he got uh, life plus 35 years, which means, you know, technically you're not going to get out of prison on that. He went to prison. Uh, during, or during the trial, he was outed as a, as a transgender, which, of course, ticked off, you know, a lot of people that he knew. Uh, they felt that, uh, you know, he had condom and all that. So he went to prison. He survived uh, because, uh, you, you know, there were attempts on his life and all that. And uh, he became a transgender activist, and um, he started taking hormones. He got he got the um, the um, uh, uh, right to change his name. He changed it to uh, a female name, and uh, he began fighting for transgender uh, rights. And I talked to him on the uh, video call um, the other day, and uh, he was uh, you know he was a woman. Uh, he's got a woman woman's name now, and um, uh, he's. Uh, you know, at peace with himself. So he's made this tremendous, incredible journey, you know, from uh, a, a, a rabid white nationalist uh, to a militant transgender activist, you know, over, over, over the course of his life. So how's that, so, how's that for a story? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you said you wrote the synopsis, but, but if something like this does, in fact, come to life and grow legs, when would something like that come to paper and be able to be consumed by the masses? Well, uh, it's interesting that you would ask me because I ask those questions myself. Uh, but I'm I'm thinking that uh, once I get the contract signed, and now I'm dealing with somebody who's in prison, right? And, he, and his rights are limited, so it's hard to deal with somebody like that. Everything takes, you know, two or three, four or five times uh, as long on that. But I'm hoping uh, I send him a contract, and uh, if everything's okay, I'm hoping that his lawyers look at it and uh, he gets back to me. But I'm thinking that. And I'm really crazy about this project. I really, I really want to do this project. Uh, there's a lot of stuff on him. He's been sending me um, um, writing out like a journal, 
you know, uh, questions that I've asked him about himself. And uh, it's going to be a, it's going to be a great story. I mean, it's gonna, and I've had people already inquire about uh, the film rights. I'm a screenwriter, too. I've had four of my um, uh, five of my books optioned uh, for, for films. And I've, I've done four scripts myself, which have been optioned on that. And so uh, I'm, I'm really interested in the film possibilities for it. And, and uh, people are, are bugging me about it already. Uh, so. Uh, I, I think it's going to be a big success, and it'll build on my la my my last book, the one I just coming out with, the real Mr. Big, on that. And uh, I really feel lucky to have two two great stories like that, you know, back to back. I mean, uh, you know, both of them are just uh, amazing stories, and they're going to be fun to research. And uh, one of the things I love about, about writing uh, true crime, investigative true crime, is that you're always learning. You know, you're learning about about something, and um, I'm I'm learning about uh, uh, transgenderism. I'm learning about white nationalism because of this, and uh, it's going to be a, a great experience. It sounds like one for sure, for sure. That's all I have for you today, Ron. I I do appreciate you coming on the show. I had uh, very high expectations for the uh, for this conversation, and it even exceeded them. So I appreciate it. Right. Well, like I said, if um, if you um, want to get the um, uh, the Mr. Big on your show, we can arrange that. For sure. Uh, we'll, we'll work something out in the coming weeks. But uh, in the meantime, The Real Mr. Big does come out April 20th. There's an ebook out already, but the print book will be come out and uh, we'll be hitting the, the campaign trail, you know, the publicity trail uh, uh, on that date. 